Welcome to Thrivers, nonprofit leadership for the next normal. I am your host, Tucker Wanamaker, the CEO of Thrive Impact. Our mission is to solve nonprofit leader burnout. Burnout is the enemy of creating positive change, and we want to connect you with impactful, mission-driven leaders and ideas so that you can learn to thrive in today's nonprofit landscape. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, as usual, Sarah Fanslow, our Chief of Impact. Sarah, it's great to be here with you today. Hey, Tucker. Great to be here. And I'm especially excited about our guests that we have here. Uh, they are two incredible nonprofit leaders uh, who are running an organization called Every Mother's Advocate, joined by Charlie Chavidjan. Did I get that right, Charlie? You said it right. Oh, wow. That's awesome. She's the founder and CEO of Every Mother's Advocate. She actually started this nonprofit 20 years out of her college dorm room and has been deep in the trenches of nonprofit leadership, child welfare, maternal health, and inner city development, both domestically and globally. And we're also joined by Alessandra Thomas, who is their director of operations. And I thought it was awesome to have the two of you here because a lot of what we're going to be getting into is really how you have been living into the very values that you hold, the very vision that you have for the mothers that you advocate for, and how you're living into that and embodying that inside of your organization. Uh, but first, Charlie, uh, I just wanted to invite you. Tell us a little bit about your organization. Tell us what you're up to from a mission perspective, and then we'll kind of peel back the layer and look under the surface and see what's going on. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks so much for having us. It's one of our favorite things to talk about is just leadership and the work we do and how we build and why we build and all of the things that are just folded into that. And so Every Mother's Advocate, we go by EMA and we are a nonprofit that works to prevent family separation by advocating for moms who are in crisis. So we've served this really vulnerable population of moms who are at risk of losing their children to foster care. And then some moms who have children in foster care already and are working really hard to be reunified to them. So We've developed this court-approved prevention program uh, that essentially equips moms and empowers moms to raise their children in stable and nurturing homes. So we started here in South Florida, uh, really piloting this program um, about four years ago, and now we're equipping organizations really across the country to operate uh, the EMA program in their own local cities. So we just... It's an honor to be here and yeah, excited to get into leadership. That's great. Thank you, Charlie. Alessandra, anything you want to add about uh, your organization, what you're up to uh, on that front? Oh, wow. That's that's hard after that spiel that Charlie <laughs> gives uh, our little like elevator pitch. Um, yeah, I think what I'm most excited about to add is we really are, <laughs> when you said uh, we've been authentic about what we, what we're learning. It's like truly, truly what uh, you can hear. You can literally hear you were saying how authentic I was about being a, a new mom. My kid is literally outside of my door trying to get into my work from home <laughs> office. Me too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, just the, the ability, Charlie always says this to our team, what we're learning about, like allowing our team to learn and fail forward and and especially as we're scaling this new organization, just yeah, being able to work for work in an environment where we feel safe in that, and where we're creating space to to replicate and and look at models and test it with organizations that are like us. There's just like magical moments that happen between mm. between that, and I'm excited to be on the ride. Mm. Well, I have a question for y'all. Um, Charlie, your description of the organization is fascinating and it made me immediately made me wonder why why this need? How did you come to this and why did you start the organization? Yeah, I have uh my my mom and dad fostered when I was in middle school and high school. And so I've always been really exposed to the child welfare space. But it wasn't until I was 17 years old and moved to South Africa for a semester and worked in several cities in some of just the poorest communities uh, and orphanages and schools. And God really called me into my life's work to the to serve the most vulnerable moms and kids. And so my heart just bled for these moms that I got to work alongside that were living in the slums of Africa. 
And when I went to school in Virginia, I remember not wanting to wait till I graduated to start. And mm. so I just, we student led, uh, program we started that was very inner city focused, serving alongside moms and uh, teen moms who were pregnant and raising their kids. And um, I just really got to live in close proximity with this crisis and do life with these women and um, learn their stories and understand their realities Mm -hmm. and their pain points within the communities that they lived in. Mm -hmm. And so I joke and say, I don't know how much good we did by providing this like mentoring program for these moms because we were 20 years old ourselves and did not have kids. Um, but we did just, we were able to build really genuine relationship. And so my husband and I, when I met him, we got married and moved to South Florida and I, but we became licensed foster parents ourselves before we had kids of our own. Mm. And it was really, it was two and a half years into fostering that we always knew our hearts would break for the kids that we served and had no idea that our hearts would break for their families until two and a half years in of doing that. And we realized um, just the barriers and the challenges that predominantly birth moms face and experience when they become entangled in the child welfare system. And so that's when like this saying that we say at EMA a lot became really true and became this paradigm shift that behind every child at risk, there's a mom in crisis. And we, we focus a lot on these children who are vulnerable and are at risk, but we forget sometimes that they have these moms behind the scenes that are fighting valiantly for these kids to keep them in their care. And so we just became really fixated on what's preventable. You you just begin to ask the question, why are there so many kids in foster care? And what we found is that the vast majority, 76% of these kids are entering foster care for reasons that could be prevented. And that was astonishing Mm. for us. That was really our light bulb moment of this is an injustice. This is wrong. This is preventable. Yeah. And we've, I've always served the mom in crisis, but it was four years ago that that aha moment became, uh, very apparent that this was, this was our newfound vision and what the mission of EMA was always supposed to be was yeah. to serve that mom in crisis, but with this very tangible goal of keeping families together, empowering her to raise her children. Mm. going downstream to get the root it sounds like yeah yeah exactly it's it's just focusing on those root causes and we firmly believe in the next 30 years we will see um that and when we talk about the family separation crisis we're we're focused on that prevention number and to say what would it look like if our foster care system became this space that was the last resort. Like every child in foster care, every child being adopted was because they had no family and they were truly this modern day orphan and that anyone else, if possible, could stay home mm-hmm. and just sustain that bond that they have with their moms. Mm-hmm. Well, and and Charlie and Alessandra, you kind of, Alessandra, you sp- spoke to this just a second ago, which is what really um, compelled me to want to have you on this podcast is I met you in Denver, uh, you know, just about a month ago or a little bit before that. And I was so struck not only by your mission, of course, by what you just talked about, but how you're really learning and living and breathing this within yourself, within your organization. Um, Your, you know, as I said, our mission, which is to solve nonprofit leader burnout, you're actively working on that inside of your own organization and being honest with yourselves about it. Uh, you know, I was struck by the story, Alessandra, as you were, you know, you kind of alluded to, which is that, you know, Charlie, you brought on Alessandra as the director of operations after she had just become a new mom, as an example. And there was a, and just how you're like, we've got to leave, live into this. We've got to embody this inside of our organization. Um, and so I just wanted to, I wanted to dive underneath the mission. Uh, Cause I think, how things really go down is a big deal. Um, Cause there are a lot of nonprofit leaders out there that have these incredibly compelling missions, but are totally fried, <laughs> which subsequently is, a, is an enemy of creating that positive change. And so would love to unpack this a little bit around what does this next normal of nonprofit leadership look like for you? And maybe, maybe you unpack that story as well uh, around bringing on Alessandra as an example and Alessandra, what you've experienced as the director of operations and as a new mom 
uh, around this type of work? Um, yeah, Charlie called me when I was six weeks into my maternity leave, which I was like, who is this? What's going on? I was like head in the clouds um, and really pitched this opportunity to come on as a director of operations. And I was super intimidated because I was just like, I don't know what this new normal for my for our family is going to look like. And we were in COVID, like we just, I mean, it was January, 2021. So COVID was like, we're just, no vaccines yet. We were still figuring things out. And she was like, we can work around, we can work around your schedule and, and this baby. And I was just like, this sounds like a dream. And obviously there's seasons where that's easier to do, to work around uh, a tiny baby who sleeps most of the time schedule and then adjusting to that. And then even in this new season, my son just turned two, which means that I will be at EMA uh, for two years. Like I'm coming up on my second anniversary um, in March. And just even seeing that trajectory of my time at EMA where like there was a lot of flexibility at the beginning and that was incredible. It allowed me to onboard in a way that didn't feel... Um, scary with like, what do I do with this child in the middle of COVID um, to now like having a lot of support at home where my husband can take Oliver. I'm, I'm headed down to South Florida next week to do um, some planning and training and um, looking at 2023, Sarah, which we were talking a little bit about earlier and uh, being able to like really spend time focused and you know, like the flexibility that I get on a week like this, where at 4.30, I'll be able to start hanging out with Oliver, is the flexibility that I get to give back to Ema next week, where I'm working long a, a longer week. And so it's just been incredible. I, and it's like, Shirley always says, like, we, this is what we want for our moms that we're serving. We want them to like live full lives. And we get to do, we get to model that in the day-to-day -day work that we're doing. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's important to us. Um, we're a team of all women and we, most of us are moms with young kids. So there's always a lot of small children in our Zoom screens <laughs> Yeah, and it's, you know, learning. I just think it's a lie that women have to choose mm -hmm. if they feel called to both. And you can do both. That doesn't mean you have to do both, but you can do both. And that we get to exercise that. And it's really hard. And it's hard to find the balance, especially when you're running an organization that's advocating for moms. It is to like empower them to raise their kids. And then at the end of the day, you feel like you're failing as one. And that um, is an important reminder for eat for us on this team to extend that grace. And I think all of us are the first ones to say if like one of our kids is sick or we have to bow out of a meeting or an opportunity, like there's so much just grace and understanding because we do have to practice that value of the same advocacy we're going to offer to the moms that we serve every day. We have to offer to ourselves and we have to offer to each other. And it's, it's really hard. I think sometimes it feels like that's where your biggest target is, is on the very mm -hmm. thing you're trying to systemically change. Mm. And within that, what are some of the main pains or issues that you have faced when it comes to, I mean, frankly, merging your values with your behaviors, right? <laughs> like yeah. putting it all together. I loved how you said, uh, mother should not have to choose. We should not have to choose as nonprofit leaders between the mm -hmm. two when we feel called to both. Uh, what have been some of the challenges and the pains that uh, you've faced and that other, maybe you've even seen other nonprofit leaders face around these types of, uh, this type of work environment, essentially? Yeah. Al, do you want to go first? Um, yeah. I think, I think that Charlie is right when we say we can do both, but I think that you can't do it all mm -hmm. and real like realizing what those what those things are that you are supposed to do and like she was saying like there are weeks where you feel like you're failing your family because mm -hmm. you're really focused on this one thing that you have to move forward um and just learning that learning to ask for help if you don't like to do that 
can be hard. And mm. um, my husband and I both work from home, which is such a gift. And we both have flexible schedules. And then every once in a while, a meeting, we we have a meeting that overlaps when we don't have childcare. And like, we are really, really have incredible community around us. And asking for help can feel some sort of like weird sometimes to be like, hey, can you come over at 4.30 and be with Oliver while I take this call? And so I think realizing you can't do it all, you need support and asking for it is where I experience some of my pain. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. We also talk a lot about that we're like bigger believers in, in season than balance. And there are seasons that are just crazy and hectic. Like next week is one of them. And we plan around that and we plan for that and to create space and margin in advance or on the tail end to like have that white space in your life for the rest, you know, for just the connection back to your family Mm -hmm. and then like in the seasons of slow being okay with that because that's hard too I I, like Mm -hmm. usually summer months specifically July is a really slow month and this last year I remember feeling like I was failing more in my identity at work than I was in my identity in within my family and to my kids and to my husband and like learning to just lean into those seasons of both rest and those seasons of busyness. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in what Al is saying around asking for help and needing support and being okay with sometimes a slower pace where, yeah, we're building this organization and believe that it will be very significant and create lasting impact across this country. And it might take us a little bit longer and that's okay. And we don't have to do this in the next three years. We can do it in the next 10 or we don't have to do it in the next 10 years. We can do it in the next 30. And like, if it means that we can still parent our kids well, so like be present in our marriages, present in our communities and um, yeah, just lean into those seasons. Yeah. Cheers for the call to slow down, right? Is what I I hear you saying and being okay with that. I have a question for y'all. We're we're talking about being, you know, moms in the workplace and the challenges of that, but also, you know, the resources and privileges we have that allow us to do that. What, What does it look like? What does it look like and how is it different for the moms that you serve? And what are the choices they're not able to make that you all or we all may be able to? And how does that affect things? Oh, such a good question. We talk about this so much where like, if I'm late to a meeting with Charlie, she's like, totally, I get it. Don't worry. Like if my kid is sick, Charlie's like, you can do this and take the day. Where like, if a mom is late to her job, there's a chance she might get fired Mm -hmm. or she might not have someone to call to come over and watch her kid. Yeah. And that's actually something that we, when we are looking for partners to do this work with us we ask them what percentage of their moms don't have support, like social support around them. And almost all of the partners that we currently have, not, they often say like over 90% of the moms they serve don't have social support. Mm-hmm. They don't have that person they can call when they have a meeting that right. overlaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even just there's, I mean, being in this work and Al has a really cool story of kind of what highlighted Ema to her that you should share out about when you first had Oliver before I called you to come join mm-hmm. the team. But we like we I have a car yeah. and a home mm. and these luxuries like these are not necessities. These are luxuries that and life and like raising two kids is still hard. Right. And we have all of these things. I tell this story about this mom that was in our program a few years ago and I was advocating for her and she had two kids and worked at Chick-fil-A. She did the morning shift where she she had to chop up all the salad. So she had to be there at 5 a.m. And she would drop these two kids at two different daycares on a bike every morning before 4 a.m. And it would, she would bike about like five or six miles all the way there and then have to do on the way home 
five times, five to six days a week. This was her schedule and she did it. And I look at her and I'm like, I wouldn't do that. Right. You are stronger than Mm. me. I don't think I would have the discipline to stick to that type of schedule or sustain that type of schedule for that amount of time. And so you really look at these moms who most of them are single. All of them are living at near below the poverty line and they are so strong and resilient and some of the strongest, most resilient women we know. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's convicting and inspiring all in the same Mm -hmm. vein. Mm. And heartbreaking that they have to do that, right? That the system puts them in a position to sometimes have to choose, right? Whereas we can say you can do both. Sometimes that's a choice based on one's resources, right? Mm -hmm. And without those, sometimes we don't have that choice, um, particularly for folks living in poverty, because poverty is time consuming, as y'all know, right? It's really time consuming. Um, mm. Yeah. So in this in this space, Charlie and and Alessandra, what are I want to get down into some like practical things because some of the things like you're leaning you're li- living into your values or learning into your values. Mm-hmm. Um, you also have a very uh, co-creative culture, from what I understand, right? Where every voice matters um, and you, a collaborative oriented culture, a mm-hmm. space that you're continuing to help open up voices from everybody within the room. And co-creation is a big deal for us too. It's literally one of our core values. Mm. Um, and I'm just curious, like what are the rhythms that you have around both you as mothers mm-hmm. uh, as well as within your organization around collaboration and co-creation uh, mm-hmm. that that you currently have and you're working on around that? Yeah, I think I love that you say you're learning into your values because it it's so true that we are working really hard to establish those rhythms and we're a small team. And so my dad always describes small teams as a, it's like anytime someone gets on or gets off, it's like getting on or off a, a canoe or a rowboat, not a houseboat. And it like rocks the boat. And you have to figure out how to do and build and co-create with people shoulder to shoulder and everything the person beside you, in front of you, behind you does affects you. And so you do have to learn like, like collaborating is learned for a lot of people. For most of us, it's not, it's, it's not as natural to want to lean on the person next to you and like learning how to play in one another's sandboxes, if you will, but also have ownership and agency of a lane. And, Mm. and that balance is really, is really hard. And specifically for speaking from my own experiences as a leader, someone that's an entrepreneur that started EMA from the ground up, I've done every job and learning how to offload those things to the person that's coming behind you and to empower the team to get to this place where they feel like they have decision-making authority over this thing. And that I think inspires um, rhythms for collaboration and inspires people wanting to collaborate more when they feel empowered in a space to be able to just like live freely and fail freely and build, but also co-create with the person next to you. Mm. Charlie, how have you as the founder and the CEO um, made the shifts that you needed to, as you said, you've done all the jobs. Uh, And by the way, I'm asking this as a personal question, having Mm -hmm. also in similar shoes of I'm, I've been unlearning a lot lately Mm -hmm. is what it feels like. I feel like I'm unlearning more than I'm learning in some Mm -hmm. ways, like unlearning some of the old behaviors uh, you know, and as a scrappy uh, entrepreneur, like, you know, nonprofit leader, as you said, you've, you've worn mm-hmm. all the hats, you've done all the jobs. Uh, what has been your shift and journey around you as an ED to, mm-hmm. or as CEO to, um, to make the shifts that you needed to make to create a co-created environment? Cause I'm, I, I'm reflecting on some of the EDs that we're even working with right now. Like we just had this conversation yesterday, Sarah right around a particular nonprofit, small nonprofit, similar probably to your size and, uh, and wrestling through 
the what's my role as a CEO or an ED uh, within a co-creative environment? Because mm-hmm. we, we don't have models for co-creation that are, are prevalent, right? We're used to top-down approaches. We're used mm-hmm. to hierarchy uh, in general, right? Uh, I was talking to the founder, one of the founders of Appreciative Inquiry, our methodology, and he said our hooks as Americans are so deeply in the into the leader, that one person, mm-hmm. the leader. Um, and, and that's not the world we exist in anymore. That's where this next normal is. So I'm just curious, Shirley, from your perspective, what's been your journey of unlearning and leaning into co-creation, what are some of the things that you've done to actively create that that space? Uh, it's a hard question. I, I think, honestly, Alessandra could probably better answer because she's on the receiving end of my leadership. And so like, what is it, asking even that question, like, what is it like to be on the other side of me mm. and creating culture of feedback and not like depersonalizing feedback and being vigilant on working on those things. And so I, I'm, <laughs> I feel like we're in couples counseling right now. <laughs> Do it, tell us more. Tell us, Alessandra, Alessandra, tell us more. <laughs> I this think, is why I wanted both of you on this podcast. It's perfect. <laughs> I think you've been really intentional about communicating the things that you feel like are hard for you. Mm-hmm. Like, and it is so true. Charlie has done literally everything. Sometimes I go into MailChimp and I see old emails that she designed, wrote, <laughs> and executed. And I'm yeah. like, that's wild. And so I think one of your strengths, Charlie, in this has been that you communicate like, this is something that I used to do. It's hard for me to let go of it. Mm-hmm. I want mm-hmm. to empower you. And mm-hmm. even just saying those things, I think, sort of takes away some of that power of wanting to stay in that um and I think it's a lot a lot a lot of conversations and honesty around like hey this didn't feel good or hey can we do this different next time or Mm -hmm. and one of the one of the things I love about uh a process that we implemented last year was that we started putting postmortems uh in place for like a lot of projects that we were working on and I think creating that culture of feedback Mm-hmm. was helpful in not only in you giving feedback to the team as you were like maybe I'd like to see this done differently but for the team to be able to say this is how I this is what I would want to do next mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and I think that I you know I think we've all seen leaders build empires like on their backs and it is really centric to that one dynamic, charismatic leader. Mm-hmm. And yet, are those organizations enduring? Are those businesses enduring? And what does it look like when, you know, post-succession plan? And um, does the culture stay the same? Does it change for the worse? Does it change for the better? And I don't have, I have no desire for that kind of authority and power. And I'll I'll also say this, it's I think as a leader again that's like done all the jobs, it's it, it's it's so I'm still learning every day how to do that, how to offload, how to delegate, how to let people with the most information in closest proximity to that particular issue be the one to make the decision because you know more. And so it's it's a consistent humbling Um, But I think as leaders who have done the job for an an extended period of time, the reason we take it back and make the decision is because it's easier in the moment, in the moment, it's Mm. easier, it's faster, and it just gets the job done. In the long haul, the only thing that's going to stand in the way of your business or organization scaling is you, because you have to learn how to replicate yourself and really just highlight the leadership qualities of those around you. So your your rate, especially with a small team, everyone on our team is a leader mm. and you're leading something. And so I think having the right people around you, um, especially when you're in startup phase, mm. you, again, to just have the appropriate amount of grace for one another and 
really honest conversations like Al is saying over and over again about what can I work on and um, yeah, just how to continue to build with that in mind. Mm. I love some of the rhythms that you were just talking about too of um, Charlie, some of the ways that you, Alessandro, that you shared that Charlie does around uh, intentional, being intentional about sharing what's hard. Like this is hard for me just to name it. Um, to share it, to communicate it. Uh, I like your rhythm around postmortems uh, in terms of like, and I'm curious, like how feedback really happens, like mm-hmm. almost like what's a zooming into that, that moment. So I'm, that's, I'm curious about that. And I'm also curious about what other rhythms, like Charlie, for example, I know that you have one around yourself with your family, mm-hmm. uh, right. As an example, like what are real granular specific rhythms that you have around how do you offer feedback and just around, you know, like you're about to have a planning session as an mm-hmm. example, is that one of your rhythms? Like, how does it really go down? If you can unpack even more around uh, your rhythms, that would be great. Uh, well, in all of our one-on-ones, we do um, like, we just do a personal check-in. Uh, we say, what are you longing? What are you grieving? What are you grateful for? I'll also be honest, we don't always do this in our one-on-ones, but the weeks that we have time, we try to check in just personally um, to just humanize this meeting. Mm. And these are very real, two real people in one room that have full lives outside of this work and just checking and keen into those things. And then we do something called short accounts and short accounts is just an opportunity for both parties to say, Hey, has there been anything I've done in the last week that's offended you? Yeah. That's hurt you. That was misconstrued. And 10 out of 10 times, whatever is named in that moment. And most weeks there's not anything, but some weeks there is. And some weeks you spend half of your time talking about that thing where it is like, Hey, well, when you said this, you know, I already told this team member this. And then I felt like you kind of overstepped by going around and and it's just that opportunity to de-escalate it, depersonalize it, mm-hmm. and like eliminate that story. Sometimes we tell this story in our head, and this yeah. narrative becomes true to me, but it's not actually true once you right. air it out. And mm-hmm. so just giving room for truth for the other person to be like, oh, I totally didn't mean to do that. I didn't realize I did that. I'm so sorry. And you move on. And you don't let it linger and you don't let it just continue to swell up into a larger issue when it doesn't need to be. Mm. I love that piece around timely and always a part of the conversation, right? Like that's the other thing I think that's true about feedback, or at least I've found that if you let it lie without addressing it, then that story in your head gets bigger and the opportunity to let it not become a narrative is more challenging. Mm. What other rhythms that, that was so, I think, by the way, I'm thinking about nonprofit leaders that would be listening to this, like that level of granularity, like what you just shared, personal longing, grieving, and grateful for, uh, and then short accounts. That's what you call it. You give it a name, you make it a thing and it's a thing, mm-hmm. right? It's a rhythm that you all just know is there. And sometimes mm-hmm. you don't do it right, yeah, but it's, yeah. it's a general thing. And if we have something then it's, we're able to have the space for it. What other kind of what other kind of rhythms do you have that enable some of this co-creation to happen that enables some of this connectivity to happen, especially on such a smaller team where I loved your mm-hmm. canoe analogy of when somebody gets off or, or shifts around, it actually like rocks the boat. It's not yeah. like a houseboat. Yeah. yeah. I love that. I'll share one that is my favorite thing we do. Yeah. Uh, yearly, we get together for a retreat mm. um, where we spend time not only co-creating, but really just resting together and spending time with one another, getting to know each other. Our, like Charlie was saying, our team is pretty small and there's been a lot of growth in the past mm-hmm. year. And so being intentional about getting to know one another in a, outside of the office is, I think, especially for someone that's remote. Yeah. And I am the only remote employee, so I'm speaking for myself. But there is... After after that retreat, everything changed for me with the team because mm-hmm. I like was friends with them. Like I'm like, oh, I mm-hmm. I know these people. Mm-hmm. They've watched me cry. They've watched me laugh. Yeah. We played games together, and they've seen me get competitive, and they still love me. Um, <laughs> so some of those things where it is like, then you kind of get on a Zoom, and co-creation actually becomes easier because of that. Those times. Mm. 
Yeah, mm. I would agree with that. I think the level of relationship is really important and that's culture. And we've even onboarded some new team members recently who have said that's been one of the hardest things about joining our team is now this level of merging more of like who I am as a person in my work, my personal mm. in my work, and not in a way that's invasive or even expected. And, um, but like, it's, it's a breath of fresh air to them. And they're like, I don't know how to do this well. And yeah. to do this in a way that feels safe for me, mm -hmm. especially as the team grows, you know, for a team of 10, that feels easy to accomplish when we can have a meeting and all of us are in one room. But for the organizations or enterprises that are a hundred people where that's really hard to accomplish in terms of sustaining relationship and building relationship, but that builds not just connectivity, but trust. And mm -hmm. then when you have those meetings with short accounts, it feels easier and more natural because there's trust at play. Yeah. yeah. Well, Sandra, I wanted to ask you a question. You're the director of, of operations. Um, we've talked a little bit about rhythms. I'm interested in other systems or structures you all have built within your organization in support of um, growing your organizational culture and uh, improving or increasing the impact of your work. One of the things we've been working on a lot at Thrive Impact is um, roles. Uh, we use the Darcy or the Racy framework mm -hmm. and also what it means to make decisions and what are the specific steps one needs to make, need to make decisions. And so I'm, I'm curious, what are the systems or structures you all are building that you're finding helpful as you grow into your next stage? We have a Racy. Love it. We love a we love a racy. Love a racy. Uh, I'm like we should be pulling up the racy more though. You know, racy have gotten sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I'm there with they you. They are they are yeah. buried in our group. No, we we do. Um. Well, so a few of the processes and systems that we use is that we have a weekly Monday morning call where we yeah. are all together. We start with prayer. We start with quick syncs, and that has been really helpful in communicating just everybody knowing what everybody's working on. Mm. And it is so quick, but it's made such a big difference. Mm. And then once a month, we do spend like a full hour together on that Monday and just do like a deeper dive into what we're working on. Usually there's a topic that we cover, whether mm. it's training or just going deeper into something that we're doing. Um, Impact-wise, one of the things that we implemented last year was a project management software called Asana, and that has been you. You're an Asana yeah. fan. Yeah, we love. Oh, Asana. we love Asana. It's, so yeah. it's the best. I'm like, give me a unicorn okay. when I finish one task. I need <laughs> yeah. it. Give me that love the unicorn. Yeah, I do. <laughs> yes. Um, but really, just allowing people to lead through Asana, like being like, "Hey, you need me to do something." assign it to me, communicate well. Obviously mm. there's a lot of, we've given some parameters around what this means. Don't assign something to me for do tomorrow. Um, <laughs> although I do that to Charlie. Um, <laughs> but yeah, some of those things. And then we're just, I mean, next, um, next week, we're going to be spending a lot of time casting vision for the team for the next three years. Mm. And then even 2023, bringing some rural clarity, which I'm excited about and just spending time just looking at what it looks like to do the work that we're going to do next year. And in the next three years, who do we need on the team? What's, what's the growth that's to come? Um, and just, I think the more you can communicate that early on, the better it is for a team to receive and like be mm. prepared and like mm. even be on board without yep. having, mm. you know, so I'm really excited about that. Mm. I love that. I love that. It sounds like both it's, it's about the assets, human assets and, and other assets that you need to leverage. And that's changing, right? As organizations grow, those things shift and yeah. having the rhythms and support of understanding what you have and what's working and what you need in order to grow. It sounds like you all really do an amazing job of that. Mm, I love that. I'm curious what you would tell, both of you would tell nonprofit leaders who are um, wrestling through having either in a top-down structure or, and wanting, like we, we hear the word inclusion a lot in our space mm -hmm. as it should come out um, and inclusion, inclusion of voices um, and having more bottom-up approaches, mm -hmm. but it takes courage to go into the space of co-creation and what you're doing. And mm -hmm. for those who are 
those who are wrestling, you know, as an ED or CEO or as a directors of operations who are like, how do I make this leap? Uh, how do I make this step? How do I, you know, both the psychological step and then the practical step, like, what would mm -hmm. you tell those leaders that are out there that are really wrestling through this? Like what steps would you give them and what kind of wisdom would you advise, would you give to them for, around this? Yeah, I, I think flat leadership is something we've talked about a lot that also feels like a newer concept. And when I first learned about flat leadership, I, the pendulum swung really hard where I was like, we're this leaderless organization. And like everybody just march to the beat of your own drum. And there's not like sound strategy in that either. And mm -hmm. so finally someone described flat leadership. They were like, what do you think flat leadership is? <laughs> and the, a mentor of mine described flat leadership as just the fewest levels of leadership possible. Mm. So at the time, um, yeah, just creating like if we're a team of 10, we should have like two, right. max three levels of leadership of like managers and directors basically. And mm. where you feel like when you eliminate that hierarchy of like all these like very nitty gritty reporting systems. And I realize in large organizations that's harder to do, um, but it is possible. And so you, you, that affords you the opportunity to feel like you're building alongside, you're co-laboring, you're co-creating because you feel like on the same level as the person next to you. And even for the person that you are reporting to, that you have, that they are like tuning into your perspective and your voice, your thought, your opinion matters. And there's a lot of practices that go into that where you can't be a CEO or um, a COO that is like just checking the box and asking what you think, but don't really care. And they've already made their decision. It is a sounder practice of, I have to defer to my own opinion and like making that very conscious decision of like, I think this is the better way to go, but don't like die on these hills um, that are not going to be catastrophic to the greater organization. Like if this is not going against our mission, if this is not like exploiting someone, hurting someone, mm. or like violating the fidelity of who we are, what our values are, is it worth it? And so you're kind of asking yourself pretty consistently when you're when you're including the voice of everybody at the table that they feel heard and that they're not just not just sitting there to listen but they're participating and they're contributing and mm -hmm. the and yeah I mean we have a lot of like rules even in our meetings where we're like there's no bad ideas especially when we're brainstorming mm -hmm. because if you're sitting at a table and you throw out a few ideas and people say that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> you're like, I'm scared to talk because I feel stupid when I do. And, and we have some really strong personalities on our team too, that aren't shy of sharing their opinion. And so it's also channeling that and doing that in a way that still brings dignity to the people at the mm -hmm. table. And then it's to say like, for us, our customer is the mom. And so I think even in this season, we're learning how do we bring her to the table as yeah. we build programs like centric to this person that is on the very receiving end. And we've not done that well in the last few years. And we're finally like kind of tuning back into what does that look like to have a, a client, like a former client, a graduate on our board one day. Yeah. And that gets to really be like at that governance level, but on all levels of leadership that we have a diversity of voice. Yeah. Mm. I love that. And Thrive Impact, we like to say, is it safe to try? That's a question we ask ourselves when one yeah. person is like, no, no, we cannot. And that's like, well, to your point, is it, is it mission drift? Is it going to hurt yeah. someone? Is it hard time? Or is it maybe safe to try yeah. um, and the yeah. answer is 99% of the time yes yeah totally <laughs> yeah yeah it's mostly our own fear and I'll speak for myself my own fear that's getting in the way of us trying something you know yeah yeah you totally know, uh, my last question for you uh, for you both is uh, and this comes back to you personally 
what's been made possible for you as a nonprofit leader to be able to have a culture like this to, and again, not that it's, it's not perfect. It's not done. Mm -hmm. It's this journey. And so I want to just voice that, but you're continuing to learn into having a more flat organization, uh, having a more co-creative approach and including not only with your team, but with the very people that you serve as well. But for you as a leader, what's made possible for you in your own leadership journey, your own personal journey and burnout, if you will, um, by having this type of a organization and this type of a culture. Al, you want to go? That's a hard question. I love that you are making me go first. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I don't know my answer yet. Do you want to go first? (laughs) I think that for me, it allows me to live a fuller life. I know it sounds silly to say, you know, because we all are what's full for me can look different than other people, but I do feel like being able to spend time with my family and have what feels like balance at times and seasons that balance each other out eventually throughout the year mm-hmm. just gives me a lot of fulfillment. Like I can watch all, like I can watch Oliver out the door. I can watch him come home. I can give him a squeeze before he goes down for nap. Like there is something that is intangible for me in that. And yeah, it just makes me really thankful for what I get to do and how I get to live that. And it also allows me to live like to live in the city, the city that I live in, which as Sarah knows is like a very crazy paced place. And to have this sort of which we are, like we keep saying, next week is going to be crazy, but to have a place that feels safe and and not that way is like mm-hmm. really soothing to my soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would agree and just kind of echo that around family and the flexibility that comes around even just like building your own business or your own nonprofit and being your own boss, but also trying really hard to just set really healthy rhythms and routines for the people around you so that they can also benefit from that same culture and that same flexibility because we value family and we value those things. And so I think just even being able to just learn under the presence of phenomenal global leaders. I feel like 90% of the things I say is just a regurgitation of something else I heard from someone so much wiser than me. And that is, has gone far beyond, uh, I have. And I, I just sometimes have to just pinch myself when you think about the people you get to meet along the way and the, even coming to Denver recently when we got to meet you guys, the people we met, you just, you feel like you're, it's an out-of-body experience where there's so much good happening in this world, so many people living very missionally, and I think something being made possible is like there's a lot of people that do their jobs for the paycheck and like just to live or because they feel like they have to keep up with some kind of expectation or pace that the world and society puts on them. But what does it mean to live with so much purpose? And the purpose being like, when I die, the mark on this world is that I hope it's a better place Mm -hmm. for these moms and these kids and that systems change because of this work that we got to pioneer. And so just that element of It is actually in ways a luxury and a privilege to be able to wake up every day, do something you love, you're so passionate about, and that there's deep, deep embedded purpose in it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Charlie, Alessandra, uh, I'm, I just want to share that the, this was such a gift for me personally to not only have met you in Denver, uh, but I just, uh, I just want to appreciate the the level of honesty that you just have, like you just, mm. um, and it's not just an honesty in what you're sharing, but also an honesty in how you live. It's, it's an embodiment. Like you're really trying to embody and not, 
serve people and then totally get fried. And it's a balance and it's a tension. It's something you're learning into all the time, yet you're, you're striving towards that. And I just appreciate that because there's a lot of nonprofits out there that fry their people, frankly, mm. and, and don't look at the culture and don't, don't go into that space and just sacrifice people on the altar of the mission all the time. And, mm. and I just appreciate how you're holding those two in balance and, and in harmony, it sounds like, and more and more as you keep going. So thank you for mm. the gift of this and some of your practical things that you do. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks thank for having you. us. And we got to subscribe to this podcast and start listening. <laughs> <laughs> do it. <laughs> thank you so much. This was so fun. Well, uh, for all of you who are listening, uh, we'll have uh, some ways to connect with Charlie and Alessandra in our show notes uh, down below. Everymothersadvocate.org is their website. Um, and Charlie and Alessandra look forward to continuing to connect with you and uh, and be in community potentially one of these days. I know you're talking with people here in Denver around yes. EMA and all that work. So I'm just so grateful for that. Sarah, any last things before we go? I just wanted to offer that to you. Oh, I was just going to uh, say say the same. It was such a gift to connect with you all. And the work that you're doing is is just, it's really inspiring. You know, I think every every mom and every dad or every person that parents yeah. knows that feeling of what what if I can't have my child or, and, and um, the idea that the system is not set up for some of us, particularly folks in color of color and people in poverty to keep their right. children. You're working on that is, um, is, is huge. And just thank you for the, the work and for sharing it with us. Oh, you're welcome. It was an honor to be here. Thanks so much for having us. All right. Have a wonderful day, y'all. Bye. <laughs>